Attention crew, this is your Captain Caliban speaking. This is a supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals, where we bring you news and tidbits from the world of Trek, also interviews with special guests, and a few little surprises along the way. And I've got a pair of great surprises this week, so we'll get right to it. But first up, I want to say that if you haven't yet voted in the November election, you gotta get that done. It's not really optional, even if you're not really invested in the presidential contest, which, wow, Guru Deva, how do you stay so tranquil. What's your secret? But nevertheless, there are plenty of down-ballot choices you need to make if you want to say in your local government. So get out to the polls. Maybe vote before the third if you have that option, because I hear it's going to be a big deal. But no matter how you do it, get it done. And if you want to be someone who helps people do it, stay with me here. Stay on topic. You can go to trekthe.vote on the internet and volunteer to help support the democratic process. Trek the Vote has teamed with a number of nonprofit organizations to help people donate their time as poll workers, making sure people have the PPE and supplies they need for long wait times, helping people who need assistance voting or finding their polling place. It's a nonpartisan organization. They just want to help you give of your time to help people who want to exercise their democratic right to vote. So if you've got the time this week or this weekend, and even after the third, there's still volunteer opportunities because the election is just the start of the election process, go to www.trekthe.vote and sign up to help out. This is the last time that we'll speak until after the election, so no fooling around. Captain's orders, get out and vote. On the show today, I'm talking with Mark A. Altman. Mark is the producer and co-writer of Free Enterprise, which he co-wrote with Robert Meyer Burnett, who directed it. And if you're of a certain age, you'll probably remember Free Enterprise as the movie that William Shatner raps in. If you're a little younger, you probably know it as the movie all the Shatner gifts come from. But it's also a semi-autobiographical look at Mark and Rob's lives in the 90s, trying to climb the Hollywood ladder while ducking in and out of comic shops and bars and arguing over whether Boba Fett survived the Sarlacc pit. It's a state of being I found to be all too familiar to my own 20s. I never lived in L.A., but I have been the only adult man in a Toys R Us a time or two. Mark followed his nerddom to Hollywood, where he went on to become a writer, producer, and director. He's currently an executive producer and the showrunner of the CW series Pandora. And you may be familiar with his comprehensive two-volume The 50-Year Mission, an oral history of Star Trek, which he co-wrote with journalist Edward Gross. I got a chance to talk with Mark recently about his show, his books, his podcast, being a nerd in Hollywood, and how Star Trek has inspired the worlds he himself has created. Mark has a lot of irons in the fire, so I guess I'd suggest that you check out the show notes for all the links to what he's got going on. If you like this conversation, you'll probably really like his podcast, Inglorious Trexperts, where he and Darren Doctorman talk with Trek stars and industry professionals about Trek. The 50-Year Mission is a required reading, so check that out on Amazon or wherever you get your books, and watch Pandora, which is now airing on the CW on Sunday nights in its second season. It's a really fun series. Okay, that's it for me. Let's get into it with Mark. Stick around after the interview for the other surprise, which is Captain Janeway related. Get out and vote, and with that, let's get underway. My guest on the show today is Mark A. Altman. Mark is a writer, producer, and director, and he's the executive producer and showrunner of the sci-fi series Pandora, which is in its second season on The CW. Mark co-wrote and produced the film Free Enterprise, a semi-autobiographical look at sex, sci-fi, and Shatner in 90s L.A., He's also the co-author of The 50-Year Mission, the complete, uncensored, unauthorized oral history of Star Trek, and he's the host of the Inglorious Trexperts podcast. Mark, welcome to the show. 
Thanks, Aaron. I got to tell you, that is the best description I've ever heard of Free Enterprise. And that movie's 20 years old. I've never heard a better description. I love that. Sex, sci-fi, and Shatner. What a great description. I'm I think stealing that, that. That wraps it up pretty good, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it totally does. Oh, my God. You know, and it's so funny because I, I talk about that movie like, oh, everyone's seen it. I forget it's 20 years old. And, you know... They, they never put out, you know, they haven't put out a Blu-ray because they, there's no high def transfer. Yeah. So it's like they have to put all this money into doing a high def transfer. And so it's sort of become this little esoteric little gem. And uh, but I love I love I love it. I love that 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 description. It's so apt. And it was my first movie. And it was uh, one of the great experiences of, 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 of my career. I mean, it was just a fantastic fantastic thing to do well it's great to have you aboard and i always ask new guests on the show how they first became star trek fans and we get a little taste of your backstory with trek in your film free enterprise but how did you first discover star trek yeah that's a that's you know it's a funny it's a good question i know so many people have a great answer for that and yeah. the problem is i don't remember exactly like i vaguely remember you know like i know i i watched it religiously on channel 11 in new york growing up when it was in strip syndication and you know and i i know how much i absolutely it's even possible that i might have seen the animated series before i but i don't i don't remember exactly i you know I, what i do remember is i remember vividly watching the show the hundred thousand dollar pyramid where they had a so called Star Trek expert on the show. And, uh, you know, he, he answers three or four easy questions, you know, layups. And then they ask him, they said, uh, what was the name of the uh, starship destroyed by the doomsday machine? And I'm like, oh, this kid got it. That's easy. It's the constellation. And he's like, ah, ah. I'm like, what? What? I, I remember just like, I was probably eight years old, freaking out that this kid couldn't answer such a freaking easy question. <laughs> yeah, about, uh, yeah, Star yeah. Trek. So um, I, that I remember. And I, you know, and I remember I'm, buying a ton of the books and reading that the great short story about the Kirk and Spock and uh, Leonard and, and Bill and, and uh, D finding themselves on the real enterprise in uh, new voyages, uh, the short story collection and, you know, reading the James Blish novel. So, I mean, I have a very vivid memory of being a Star Trek fan in the seventies. And of course I, I have incredibly vivid memories of going to see Star Trek, the motion picture and, and, and that long wait for it to come to movie screens. But uh, I don't remember exactly what triggered my initial passion for Star Trek. That's lost to the, you know, history, I guess. Yeah. And you're of the perfect age where it's just there. Like I hear from a lot of people that they got into it because they were watching it with their parents or they were exposed to uh, the advent of TNG or later shows. But for you, I mean, you, you were just growing up. You were just being born into it when it was on. Yeah, I mean, it's like I I know that like on Channel Eleven in New York where they show like it was like you know they show Batman and then they, after that there was some, some good stuff. So I mean, I, I would come home from school and it was just the thing where you like watch like McGilla Gorilla and and Batman and uh, and then you know probably have dinner and then like at six o'clock Star Trek would come on and um, you know for a long time I used to watch it in my room on a black and white TV. I never even saw it in color. So, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, and of course, so many people that I'm friends with now, you know, had a, a very similar experience. Darren Docterman, who I do the podcast with, you know, had a very, yeah. very similar experience. He grew up uh, in the New York area in Philadelphia and, and, and other Scott Mance and all these people. We, we sort of of, of almost of the same age and we sort of grew up the same way, you know, where Star Trek was like such a big deal. And of course, you know, it was an era where 
there was not much of it. You know, there were the 79 right, episodes right. and and there was, uh, you know, a couple of novels and, and, and the Gold Key comics and that was it. So your imagination <laughs> yeah. would really, you know, get you carried away about dreaming what it would be like if there were ever to be more Star Trek. So, of course, when yeah. the, the movie and then subsequently the, the TV series Phase 2 was announced, it was like the most exciting thing in the world because that <laughs> stuff wasn't um, common back then. You know, you didn't have this stuff happen, you know. Right. And so, like, oh, my God, they're going to bring back Star Trek. And it felt like we'd been waiting for 50 years. And, of course, it had only been, you know, a couple of years. <laughs> we probably all discovered the show. And, yeah. and then the, the show got canceled. And we were all like, you know, heartbroken, like, oh, my God, Star Trek's dead again. And then they announced the movie and it's like, oh, it's alive again. And, right. <laughs> oh, and, and then, uh, you know, it just kept going back and forth. And finally, the movie comes out. And, you know, a lot of us, you know, really liked it at the time. A lot of people didn't. And and you thought, OK, well, that that's it. You know, I mean, it was very expensive and it, it did well, but did it do well enough? And there was no talk of a sequel at first. And um, and you're just thinking, OK, well, that's the end of Star Trek. What, how, what a shame. And of course, uh, it proved not to be the case. So yeah, for sure, that was when the uh, Star Wars uh, sequels, episodes uh, seven, eight, and nine, started coming out. That was a thought that I had. That up to that point, you know, we had had the original trilogy, and again, yeah, there was cartoons and comic books and books, but that was it. You could kind of encompass the entire thing. Then they came up with the prequels, which you know your mileage may vary, but they were still fun. And they wrapped up, and you thought, okay, we're done. And now, you know, Disney bought them and they're doing the sequels. And I realized I'm going to die and there's going to be another Star Trek movie that comes out and I won't have seen it. Like this thing is going to go forever now. And it looks like Star Trek is in the same position. It's so funny you say that, Aaron, because when uh, in my James Bond book, Nobody Does It Better, which is an oral history of James Bond that came out early this year in hardcover. And it's coming out in paperback this month. But the, the I had. I said exactly the same thing in my introduction. I said Gross, my co-author and I were talking about it. And the thing that really depressed us was the thought that one day they'd still be making James Bond movies <laughs> and we'd yep. be dead and never get to see them. Absolutely. And that is a terrifying thought that there will yes. be uh, James Bond movies and Star Wars movies and Star Trek movies that we will never get to see. That I'd rather yeah. the franchise die before I do than to, to actually <laughs> to know that I'll be missing out on on that <laughs> it's a, a geek's look at mortality i love yeah. that it, it's Absolutely. also it's one of the, it's one of the things i really like about a free enterprise other than wrapping shatner is that the film provides a very specific uh nerdy look at fandom in the 90s you know my itinerary for for the weekend back then was very similar to what mark and robert doing in the film you know we'd pile into my friend's crappy car get Mexican food, hit up the bookstore, the comic shop, the used book place, you know, do the circuit. Uh, and then we'd spend all of our time arguing over who the best X-Men artist was or, you know, who would win between a Gorn and a Tholia and that sort of thing. Yeah, you know, it's so funny because, um, you know, obviously we made that when these films were, um, you know, Swingers was huge at the t time. And, yeah, you know, yeah. Um, a lot of the, uh, look, a lot of people would say, oh, yeah, that's the age of the straight white male uh, uh, um, you know, going and partying uh, movie, but, uh, <laughs> but Free Enterprise was um, definitely a product of its time. But you know, for us, we were so sick of you know the the sort of cliche of the get a life Star Trek fan and the uh, right, right, you know, and the the nerd, the one that's depicted in Trekkies, you know, where the, the, you know, it's just everyone's a big loser and they're sort of mocked, yeah. you know. Even, realize it for like being a star like that was not the kind of star trek fan we knew like I, the people that we knew sort of had come out either gone to film school or or you know we we, we used to joke that 
for us, Los Angeles was kind of like Devil's Tower and Close Encounters. You know, some of us, you know, everyone, we, we all heard this call. Some of us made it and some of us didn't. And, it means and, something, yeah. You know, it means, this means something. And, and then we came out here. And, and so, like, the people that we knew, obviously, we were completely dysfunctional. There's no question about that. But we weren't nerds, you know. We were geeks, you know. And, right. I mean, you know, we were all, you know, we were all dating. We all had girlfriends and you know and our friends who were gay all had boyfriends and 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 you know it was like it was not like uh you know it wasn't like we were you know it was very and, and we took star trek seriously but we also took a lot of other things seriously politics and 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 and, and international travel all kinds of stuff and so sure. it was a very and we never seen sort of ourselves reflected on the screen it was always the you know the Big Bang Theory type of Star Trek fan yeah, yeah uh, right yeah and and, and um, you know so that I think of more no, nothing else I think that's why people reacted so well so positively to start to to our film because they were like wow it's like I've never seen like sci-fi geeks like portrayed in, in this fashion before and of course like yeah. from a personal perspective it was incredibly meaningful for me to have the chance to work with like my childhood idol Bill Shatner and. You know, yeah. for all the people that bitch and complain about him, we had nothing but a remarkable experience with him. I mean, he was just a delight. And, um, you know, uh, so, you know, it, it, we always say it's sort of ironic that we made a movie about two dysfunctional Star Trek fans who become, you know, friends of William Shatner and find out he's more screwed up than they are. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. That's kind of <laughs> what happened in real life, you know, for us. And yeah. We became friends with Shatner and, you know, realized screwed up than we were <laughs> in a good way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, on your podcast, Inglorious Trexperts, recently you were talking with um, Steve Aspell, the president of 20th Century Studios, and you're asking him about the experience of being somebody who grew up a fan of sci-fi, of Trek and geeky stuff, and later becoming a Hollywood professional, a producer, seeing the business from that side. And I guess I'd ask you the same thing. Like, what's it been like to be somebody who grew up with a lot of toys who's gone on to be playing with the real thing? Yeah, yeah. No, that's a good question. Um and I'm not sure I have a great answer. Yeah, I have to say, Steve Isbell, <laughs> Isbell was a phenomenal guest on the show. I mean, yeah. and, and you know, sometimes it, it's amazing. You you you're you're always amazed by the people that are fans of yours. Like, I mean, I yeah. think that, and and so you know, I've had in my career like a lot of people come up and say, "Oh, you know, I'm, I'm a, a big fan of yours," and it's like I'm I'm sometimes really amazed by who those people are. And and Steve was one of those people, and he was just dying to be on the show, and I couldn't understand. Then why? <laughs> and, uh, and 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 then we had him on, and he was just he was so terrific. But it was great because you're exactly right. He had like his little eagle moss Prometheus, and he had all his stuff. And, <laughs> you know, there was you know there was a time because like when you look at Free Enterprise, like Rob's apartment, the character of Rob is just right. filled with all this you know uh, toys and miniatures and 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 posters and props and things, and you know it, it's almost I remember. This is a true story. An ex-girlfriend of his once uh, said to him, I feel very uncomfortable um, uh, being in your bedroom because I have all these little eyes looking at us. And <laughs> referring to his action figures. And so I always was a little more – I was a little more tasteful. Like I always – like I had, I definitely had my collection. Uh, but I tried to like have like one or two display cases and I, I was right. always careful about like what I had. I mean I still um, – you know, have a lot of stuff, but it, it definitely is more curated <laughs> rather than everything I was ever sure. into. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so when you see somebody like Steve or a lot of these people, it's like, oh yeah, it's sort of a license to do this because, uh, 
because yeah, I, I mean, definitely when we were making free enterprise, it was so funny. I mean, you know, Rob's office was just filled with toys. Mine, w- mine was to a certain extent, but it looked like an office. But I remember like <laughs> Juliet, Juliet Landau came into audition for one of the roles um, uh, in, in free enterprise. And she looks up and she goes, Oh, there's my dad. And it was a commander Koenig, Martin Landau action. Oh, wow. Space 1999. Right. And she got quite the kick out of it. But, I, you know, that could have easily gone the wrong way. You know, she's yeah. the producer and director of the movie. And it's like all of a sudden there's like an action figure for dad in the in the audition room. It was just uh, <laughs> crazy. Uh, but uh, but but yeah, I and uh, but, you know, that that's the thing. You never know who you're going to meet who are like, you know, these, these geeks. I mean, I, I was lucky enough. I ended up working with uh, a good friend of mine, Jesse Alexander, on a show called Agent X. And Jesse was a guy who I met like at the Saturn Awards uh, who came up to me and he's like, are you Mark Altman? He had done Heroes and Lost and all these shows by then. I said, yeah. And he's mm-hmm. like, I'm a huge fan. He was a huge fan of mine from sci-fi. Years, and we became really good friends. And then many years later, we ended up – it was funny. We ended up working on the same show together. It had nothing to do with either of us. It's just like we both got hired and ended up working together. And, and <laughs> it was just so great. And there's so many people like that. And I'm always like – because I'm always like amazed when that happens, when these people – you know, when people come up and, 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 and say, I was listening to a podcast the other day. It was so weird. And um, it was David Goodman was talking about the legend of Lone Ranger. And somehow they go on this 20 minute aside about me and, and then start talking about my mother. And it's just like a very funny <laughs> story. Because apparently the, one of the hosts had grown up in Brooklyn. We'd gone to high school together. And uh-huh. uh, it was just so weird. And it's like I, I felt like it was like this Kevin Bacon thing. But like on a yeah. much more, uh, much more bizarre and esoteric scale. Yeah, it's people. Be, <laughs> they're being drawn to the Devil's Tower. Yeah, yeah people. Being they're all ending up in the same place. Exactly. Yeah, we're, di- <laughs> we're we're digging in the wrong place though. But yes. Um... Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, you wrote with Edward Gross the Fifty Year Mission, which is an incredible book, and it had to have been an enormous undertaking. What possessed you to do that? Well, it's a fun. It's funny you ask because. I'm super proud of 50 year mission. I love it. You should be. It was a huge, you know, and it was very successful, which was nice because, you know, I've been involved with a lot of things, you know, like free enterprise, which you put your heart and soul into. And then ultimately, you know, wasn't a big, it came out the same week as the Phantom Menace. And, you know, wasn't a huge (laughs) box office. And and it's, you know, it's heartbreaking, but you know, 50 year mission, like from the outset was like, it's really well. And that was really great. And because I really felt like, I worked very, very hard on that, more than any of the other books, really hard, because I, I thought we were going to be the last people to really tell this story. And so many of the people that Ed and I had talked to had passed away, too. So we knew that, like, this was, you know, like Maurice Hurley. I mean, even when we were writing it, people were dropping like flies. I mean, um, Maurice Hurley oh, yeah. and, 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 and uh, Leonard and a, a whole bunch of people and Hart yeah. Bennett. And it was just like we, we felt like we were the angels of death when we were writing this book. After we talked <laughs> to somebody, they would have no, so, um, but, uh, but I, I think that with that book, um, it really was, we had both, you know, I started, uh, when I graduated from college, I was writing for Cinefantastique and I was also working at a talent agency. And then for many years, I, I really covered next generation and various iterations, deep space nine for Cinefantastique and later for sci-fi universe, which was my own magazine, which I did for Larry Flint. But, um, the, uh, I, you know, and I, I just felt deeply indebted to that. You know, I did, you know, I was doing really in-depth coverage and, um, and, and I think there was this really great opportunity 
when when the fiftieth was coming, Ed called me and said, "Hey, you know, wouldn't it be great to do a book and update everything we've done on Star Trek and 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 for the and I'm like, I have no interest in doing this. I said, Ed, you have you have, you have no idea how busy I am, and I'm not interested in writing a book and da da da. And and he's like, and he and he's like, oh really? Because I think it would be great for the fiftieth anniversary. And he's so passionate, so excited." And I know what people want to do it. And I said, well, maybe you should do it. He said, no, I can't do it without you. We're stronger with you than without you. And I'm like, I'm like, I don't think about it. I said, let me think about it. And I, I was all going to say no. And like that weekend, I read this book called I Want My MTV, which is about the history of it. It was an oral history of MTV. Mm. And it was great. It was super. It was funny. And it was heartfelt. And it was informative. And I was like, wow, this oral history format's fantastic. And then I read the history of Saturday Night Live, which was also an oral history, which was even better. And I called up Ed and I said, look, I'm not saying I'm going to do this book, but if we did as an oral history, I might be interested if we can get a good deal for the book. And I said, so you can tell our agent, you know, that I'm open to the possibility of doing it. And and at that point, we would not get a good deal. And then I could just, you know, I wouldn't look like a dick with Ed. And, uh, and then, and then we would move on. Well, sure. our agent sold it like in three days, you know, and it was a good deal. And I'm like, Oh no, I'm stuck writing this book. And, uh, <laughs> and, but it ends up that I had the greatest time because it, I really reconnected with Star Trek in the process of writing the oh, book yeah. and reconnected That's with amazing. Ed because Ed and I used to do a lot of stuff together when I was a journalist. And, you know, we sort of, I we ha- didn't have as much, we didn't talk as much just because I was super busy and he was doing his thing and we weren't yeah. working together as much. And um, so it really, we really connected. And it was so funny because we would compete to see who could get the best interviews. So it's like, he would get this amazing <laughs> interview. And then I would, yeah. I would track down somebody and be even better. And it was like, and it would get to the point. And then he would top me with somebody he'd get. And, and it was like, we would joke, stop competing with me, Decker, you know? And, <laughs> and, and it was this little contest do get better interviews because we then send each other transcripts. I'm like, oh my God, Ed, this is so great. I can't believe you said that. And he sent me a transcript and said, oh my God, Mark, I can't believe you got them to admit that. And <laughs> it was it was fantastic. And the difference was he he's a very much like does uh, I, I'm in awe of his ability to put people at ease because he yeah. does all his interviews by phone. He never meets these people. And you could talk to somebody he interviewed like 25 years ago. And they'd be like, oh, my God, Ed Gross. I love Ed Gross. What a great guy. Huh. Like, he just gets these incredible. I, on the other hand, I, I think I spent more than I made on the book taking people out for lunches and drinks because I like to sit there because what happens is after about a half hour, 40 minutes, and you run out of questions, there's kind of an uncomfortable silence and you start to mm-hmm. drink and hang out. Yeah. And then it starts up again in another 20 Phase minutes. Phase two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> tell, you the, tell you the truth. <laughs> <laughs> But it's much more time consuming because I would spend yeah. hours taking people out for lunches and dinners and drinks. And, and it was got very expensive after a while. But yeah. uh, but but that's the way I like to do it. And so it, we really Ed and I are complete opposites, but it really works because um, we were able to, to write something that I think really is the definitive book about the making of Star Trek. I mean, to us, we wanted this to be a companion piece to the making yeah. of Star Trek by Stephen Whitfield and Ronberry. And, and, and I just feel like, um, you know, it, and it's too bad because the book came out in paperback last year after the hardcover had been out for a couple of years. And I really wanted to update it because there are a couple of amazing stories that we got for the podcast of all things that I thought mm. would be great for the book that weren't in the book because, you know, um, 
and they didn't want to open up the book. They, you know, they, it was already typeset and everything, so they didn't want us to go and 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 revise it, which is probably good because I don't know where I would have found the time. But I was like, oh, but there's this great story from so and so, and there's a great story. I mean, you know, I mean, I love the story that Jeff Kleeman told me while we were talking for the the Bond book, where he told me his whole story about how Nick Meyer kept turning him down for Star Trek Six, and he came out to visit him in Cape Cod and said he wasn't doing the movie. And then they went into the cabin and uh, Star Trek two is on ABC and they start watching it. And all of a sudden, Nick Meyer is saying, oh, I liked it with that and this. And oh, I did this. <laughs> all of a sudden, you know, in the process of watching Star Trek two on chat on ABC, suddenly Nick decides he's going to do um, Star Trek six. And that's yeah. like a story that I never heard before. It's like a remarkable story. And it's kind of like wow, Star Trek II hadn't been on ABC that night on the ABC Sunday Night Movie. Would Nick Meyer have ever done Star Trek VI? Yeah. I, I, so it's, it's kind of like, so there is all that kind of stuff that got me really excited and, you know, wanting to update the book. But, you know, and then people keep asking, oh, you can do Volume 3 on the new shows. And, you know, I, there's no way I would ever do that. So, yeah, uh, well. <laughs> you know, just because, um, uh, you know, that's a story for someone else to tell. And, sure, yeah, and I, yeah. I'm not really... Um, you know, I, I it's look. There's so there's so much to tell about these new Star Treks, and it, it needs to be somebody who's like really passionate and committed, and who who's going to turn over every rock. And you know, I'm not that guy. I don't think Ed's that guy. But at this point, but um, you know, I think you just have to have this incredible, you know, passion to tell the story because these books are really hard to write. And so oh, yeah. I think the best books done are the Star Trek books. I mean, I think Bond is amazing because. You know, we're huge Bond fans. And, you know, I think the Galactica book is fantastic, you know. Yeah. Um, and and that, that was a really fun one for me because that was a case where, you know, I literally threw out a chapter. I, we almost finished the book and um, I, I re, was rereading it and I read my chapter on Galactica 1980. And I said, there is nothing in this that no one else has written in the past. And I said, no one is ever going to write about Galactica 1980 again. So we have <laughs> to write a better chapter on galactica 1980 than anyone has ever written so i went back and i like interviewed like 20 more people for it and i got all these great amazing stories and now it is truly the greatest thing ever written about galactica 1980 (laughs) which is a a low bar admittedly yeah yeah i'm very proud of it because i just think it's a total hoot and i'm the biggest compliment was i remember uh you know uh when I was talking to Ron Moore after the book came out and Ron was just like, yeah, you know, I was just going to skip through and read my, my quotes. And then I was really into it. So I ended up reading the whole chapter on my show. And he said, then I finished and I started reading the book from the beginning and read the whole book from the beginning of, of, of the original show of Galactic 1980. So I love that book. And that was like the biggest compliment. It's like That's we great. dragged Ron Moore into writing the whole book. So he's got to read the whole thing now. <laughs> exactly, exactly. There's a lot of, there's a lot of new Trek shows. Trek's gone through a lot of changes in the last 50 years and it's starting its second half century with a lot of changes as well. And I, you know, I don't think it should be a surprise to anybody that Trek in any form is really more about the era in which it's made than the future it's set in. In your mind, what is the Star Trek series for what, the Star Trek series for the 21st century and the current moment look like? Well, I think that's a really great question. You know, and look, from a, from a selfish point of view, I would say that the the um, the Star Trek series for the moment is is my show, Pandora. Uh, yeah, sure. Okay. Obviously, Star Trek um, was a huge influence on it, and particularly in the second season 
you really see the, the huge influence of Star Trek because, of course, our um, Oliver Dentges, uh Xander Duvall gets a ship called the Dauntless. It's a you know a giant starship. You know we we have a bridge and we have we have you know yeah. and but we also more importantly than that, it, it is a show that extols optimism and hope for the future. It has the idea that um, friends are family and can overcome any obstacle. Um, sure. it, it, uh, we deal with uh, um, uh, social issues, contemporary social issues through the lens of allegory, like the original Star Trek did so well. You know, issues of xenophobia and date rape and all kinds of things. So, I mean, you know, obviously what I call now vintage Star Trek, original Next Gen Deep Space Nine, was huge influence on the show. And I feel like, you know, the first season we're finding our kind of our space legs. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of it. But, uh, you know, we got Greenland in February. We were on the air in July. We didn't have a lot of time. We were filming wow. around the world. It was, it was insane. But the second season of the show that recently premiered on the CW, I just think is, is fantastic. And I'm so proud of it. And I, I, to me, you know, it honors, uh, you know, so much of what I've learned about Star Trek and what made Star Trek work um, yeah. to me. That that is part of the DNA of the show without being Star Trek, because clearly it's not a Star Trek show. And it's a very you know different type of show with different type of characters. But um, yeah, uh, but 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 I definitely took the lessons that I feel that I learned from people like Rick Berman and Michael Piller and Ira Bear and, you know, and and and, and uh, even, you know, going back to the, the, the original series and, and applied them to um, creating my own sci fi series. And, uh, yeah. you know, I, I don't think our first season was Next Generation season one. Uh, 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 but I feel like, you know, by the time you get to, uh, the new season, we're, we're, we're sort of cruising along next generation season three, hopefully. What I love about the show is it's, it's very fun and I think it's easy to get into, but there's also some extremely deep lore there. And that's kind of what I really like about sci-fi, the different aliens and the conflicts and knowing that you had so little turnaround time is like, it's an amazing a feat that you got all you packed all that into the to the well, first season of the show. Well, not only did we have so little time, but you know, it's no secret. Obviously, we don't have a huge budget, and I, I say it's kind of like when Babylon Five was on the same time as these. And you know, Babylon Five was the little show that could, and and, yeah, and yeah. you know, for for us, um, you know, we have the budget of uh, you know, we spend on a season what they spend on an episode. So yeah. uh, a lot of the the other big sci fi shows and. Um, so, you know, it's, it's definitely a challenge, but that can also be an opportunity. And I think, you know, with first season, it was really about introducing the characters and it was very standalone and, and everything. Mm-hmm. But I think season two is, is very serialized and, and um, we really are able to explore the characters in much more depth. And I think it's a lot more surprising. And there's some really sort of classic Star Trekian types of um, challenges and stories and um, I'm really happy about it. I mean, just the fact that we were able to film it during a pandemic is, 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 <laughs> yeah, is really absolutely. remarkable. I mean, we're, we're wrapping the first, the second season this week and, um, it was just an incredible obstacle to overcome. But, uh, yeah. I just, I just feel like everything about the show, we made a new production designer. I just feel like this, the effects, the music, the cat, the, the cast, the, everything about it, the stories, the scripts everything's just taking a quantum leap forward this season. So I'm so, I'm really, really excited. And maybe the pandemic helped because of course we had more time. Um, And, but, but, you know, I'll let viewers be the judge of that. But from my personal perspective, I'm very happy with how it turned out. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to it. I also like just a little thing, but every episode has a Bob Dylan song for a title. Is there a story (laughs) behind that? Yeah. You know, that's so funny that you noticed that because very, very, very few people do. 
Uh, it's maybe not your target audience. Yeah, <laughs> it's a very limited audience. Like Dylan but, you know, To me, to me, um, I love the poetry of original Star Trek titles: "Requiem for Methuselah," "The City sure. on the Edge of Forever," "A Taste of Armageddon." Those, to me, are great. And you know, even when you get to the the the, the shows like um, the Next Generation and, and Voy- you know, the, 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 they're very uh, you know boring. The Enemy, the Defector. You know, the, I mean, just there's no poetry to them. I one thing I knew I wanted to do was have you know titles that are more poetic that also don't necessarily aren't just the high concept description of the of the episode. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> or a Latin quote, yeah, yeah, or yeah, or a Latin quote exactly. I mean, Deep Space Nine did a lot better with titles than uh, Next Gen and, and and Voyager did, but um, but so I said, you know, what's more poetic than Bob Dylan? And of course, the, you know, his songbook is so extensive that it's going to be many years before, you know, I had already said, oh, first season will be Dylan. And I think I joked at some Sony event, the second season would be like, uh, uh, you know, Taylor Swift or something. I was kidding. But, um, but, 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 you know, I thought, oh, OK, we have to go to another artist because, you know, after one season, we'll. But it, it, it was no problem finding titles, no. Bob Dylan titles. Yeah. And it's so like the, the, the second season premiere was um, uh, Things Have Changed. Which was so perfect for it because we, in a way, repilot the show, and and it's six sure. months later, and there's a time jump, and it was just so perfect, and there's just so many great titles, and uh, I love that. And it's always fun, and you know, it's funny because a lot of the writers, you know, they put their title on the on the script, and it's like, no, it's going to be a Bob Dylan title. I'm not using no, it. yeah. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so we, I think we've had some really great. Uh, the problem with it is it's always very hard for me to remember what the titles are called. So I always am referring to them by the number of the episode. Like, oh, episode 203. Yeah, I don't call yeah. it the Gates of Eden. I just call it, I call it, you know, by whatever the number is because I can't remember, you know, like what, which one is like, which one is it? It ain't me, babe. They're all, it ain't me. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's you know, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's really, it's really, it's been really fun using the Bob Dylan, um, titles and we'll see, we'll see if there's a third or fourth or fifth season, you know, if yeah. we end up. If it suddenly becomes Duran Duran or Billy Joel or Spring, I, I said maybe Springsteen. Springsteen at least you know has sure. great poetry to his titles, but uh, who knows? You know. Well, well that that tears <laughs> it for me. I, I've been thinking about doing a show comparing, uh, looking for influences in Star Trek of Bob Dylan and vice versa. But now I think I'm going to have to pull the trigger on that. Well, they both came of age at the same time. I mean, that's right. Bob Dylan preceded Star Trek a little bit. But not by a lot, and you know yeah. his latest albums were sort of contemporaneous with Star Trek, so yeah, yeah. Uh, with the original Star Trek, and then you know, and then, and then his you know his uh, his Born Again phase was in the seventies, so that that tracks, and, sure. uh, <laughs> and then he, you know he came back and did some really good albums in the late eighties. And, yeah. uh, you know, and, and, and you're giving so, me my outline here. I, I do. I know. So I, I, I think it works. I think it works. <laughs> All right. Well, I got to get to work on that, but thanks so much, Mark, for talking with me today. And there's so much more of your work we didn't get to touch on, but if people want to know more about you, your podcasts and books and your show, Pandora, where can they go online? Uh, they, uh, they can watch Pandora every Sunday night at eight o'clock on the CW or watch it anytime on the CW app. They can follow yeah. me uh, on Twitter and Instagram at, uh, Mark A. Altman. And uh, or they can just shout really loud, you know. Come yeah, I guess so. Maybe I'll hear them. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it's, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, thank you for having me on the show, and and uh, I, you know, I appreciate it. And uh, definitely, you know, I'm happy to talk again in the future. If, uh, you know, this, it, I'm always happy to talk about Star Trek. Oh, speaking of, which, if you want to hear me talk about Star Trek, they should come listen to the podcast, Inglorious Trek Experts with Darren Doctorman. 
that drops every Saturday wherever you listen to podcasts, or you can actually watch the podcast on the Electric Now streaming app, uh, which is Electric Now, and and we we have the video podcast that stream for free. Uh, if you are bold enough to actually want to watch us, <laughs> to look at your visages, yes, at our. Our, 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 our happy smiling faces. <laughs> REM could be. I could name episodes after REM. Actually, that they have a that would be good. That's doable. Speaking you could go for a while on that. Faces. I could. I could do that. <laughs> yeah. Your most recent book, Nobody Does It Better, an oral history of James Bond, is on Amazon and wherever you get your books. And also, you've got a new book in the works, Secrets of the Force, an oral oh. history of Star Wars. Has that been announced? I don't even. Well, yeah, oh. I've heard it comes. I've heard it comes out July of next year. Yes. Oh, July of next year. Wow. I better finish it. 13. Okay. All right. Well, there we go. So pencil that date yeah. in everybody and look for that. Wow. July of next year. I see you, you know more about this book than I do. I have to say, Maybe. <laughs> I got to give Ed credit. He's been doing the heavy lifting on this one. I, I've just been so busy with Pandora that yeah. um, I have not been able to spend as much time on that book as I would sure, like. Sure. But uh, <laughs> the force is with uh, young Ed Gross, but uh, yes. he not so much. Uh, I don't. I guess my midichlorian count is low, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no. I'm I'm excited about that one. Actually, that was that was the first uh, where they came to us. Normally, we pitch them uh, a oh, book. Yeah, and they came yeah. to us and they, they said, "Are you interested in doing a Star Wars book?" And we're like, "Well, we love Star Wars, you know." And then you know, reluctant again because of my schedule. And Ed really wanted to do it, and so it was like, "Okay, let's do it." But I said, Ed, you may end up getting the short end of the stick. And it's turned out that that's been the case. But I'm deeply appreciative <laughs> to him. It's going to be a great book through uh, yeah. no fault of my own. So look for that, listeners. And thanks so much again, Mark. It was great talking with you. Yeah, great talking to you. Take care. And, uh, of course, live long and uh, prosper. Absolutely. That sounds so lame. I, I take it back. Just have a good day. <laughs> we'll cut that. <laughs> thanks to Mark for talking with me. It was a lot of fun. We're going to try to get him back on the show again, maybe early next year to talk about an episode or maybe talk more about the 50-year mission. Mark is the kind of guy who peppers like 25% of his speech with uh, Trek and sci-fi quotes. He's an old-school, hardcore Trek fan, so I'd be interested in some of his takes on classic episodes. Before we go, I wanted to remind you that you can quote Star Trek quotes at us on social media or on our Discord. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter at EIST Pod, and we've got a link to our Discord in the show notes. Join us, talk Trek, talk sci-fi, talk whatever you want. We also have a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash EIST Pod. If you want to become a crew member of the show, you can get access to extended interviews and outtakes, live shows and recaps, and more at patreon.com forward slash EIST Pod. Also, so join us at 7 p.m. Central on Thursday nights for Discoverage, our live recap and review show for Star Trek Discovery. Disco has just started its third season and we're off and running, so come hear me and my co-host Ella talk about Disco on Thursday nights. Follow us on Twitter at, at @eistpod to get notified when we go live and join the conversation by tweeting to the show using the hashtag Discoverage. Okay, time to talk about Captain Janeway. So I was lucky enough to get to go to the unveiling of the new Captain Catherine Janeway statue in Bloomington, Indiana. This was an effort organized by the Captain Janeway Bloomington Collective, the president of which is a guy named Peter Ketchmerchek, and I interviewed Peter just after the unveiling on October 24th in Bloomington, Indiana. And this this is something that um, if you've been on social media, you've probably seen 
This is a group from Bloomington, Indiana. Of course, the University of Indiana has a Bloomington branch, and they wanted to honor Captain Janeway and Kate Mulgrew with some kind of monument. Um, we talk about this a little in the interview you're about to hear. And eventually they got this effort together to do it in 2020, which is, of course, the 25th anniversary of Star Trek Voyager's debut. And of course, COVID messed with that a little bit, but they persevered past the obstacles. And it's really a rousing success, I think, from the collective. Uh, I have a bunch of pictures of it. Some of them are up on our Instagram already, uh, which is at instagram.com forward slash EISDpod. You can catch those pictures there. We'll be adding uh, probably a few more in the weeks to come. But it was a beautiful ceremony. They had a great video package that they played before the unveiling where they talked with some fans, um, some scientists, uh, friends of the show, Mohammed Noor and Aaron McDonald were in that video as well, talking about Janeway's influence and how she's such a unique character and how important she was to many women and young girls who wanted to go into STEM fields. Um, Robert Picardo showed up to kind of crash the uh, the video and he was really funny. It was a great ceremony. And I've got an interview with Peter Ketchmashek about the process of kind of putting it all together. Um, the audio quality is not great. Uh, just as we were getting ready to talk to Peter and set the interview up, our recorder failed. So we used our backup, which wasn't as great. So I apologize for the audio quality. But it was a fun interview. I hope you get a chance to see the monument yourself. You know, we were in Riverside uh, three years ago when they unveiled the Captain Kirk statue. Um, bar has been raised. I think the glove is thrown down. It's your turn, New Orleans. Where's where's the Cisco? And uh, France? Where, where in France is Picard from? Uh, it's time for a monument there. Uh, let's get this thing going. Where the hell's Archer from? Isn't he like from upstate New York or something like that? Okay, all right, let's make that happen. That's it for me. I'll throw it to myself and Peter. We'll see you next week for another episode. And until then, live long and prosper. We're here with Peter Ketchmarchek, who works at Indiana State University Bloomington and is the president of the Captain Janeway Bloomington Collective. And a Star Trek fan yourself, of course. Oh, absolutely. I, us I usually ask guests when they're first on the show how they first discovered Star Trek. How'd you become a Star Trek fan? Um, I was watching the reruns in the 1970s. Yeah. Um, my sister was actually the big Star Trek fan in the house. She just had a crush on Spock like you wouldn't believe. Yeah. But it was, it was a constant in the background. Um, and we only had a little black and white TV at that point, so. Oh, I was sure, just, you sure. know, grainy screen, but I watched it all through the 70s, and yeah. then, you know, the movies came out, and Next Gen came out, and I just, I, I stuck with it, and sure. watched Next Gen from the beginning, and, and really have just been a Trek fan all the way through. It's such a good bet to be a Trek fan, because it has continued to deliver content over and over again, you know, yeah. as the years go on. It's like, mm -hmm. like, if you're like a Battlestar Galactica fan, you get like... The original 1980 a reboot, but Trek mm -hmm. is just continually making more and more stuff. I think it's really amazing. Yeah, they reinvent themselves really well. And they do that, yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, and of course, we're here in Bloomington. Uh, we're having just seen the unveiling of a statue commemorating uh, both Catherine Janeway and, of course, Kate Mulgrew, the actress behind the actor. Um, it's such. I, I, it must be an amazing process and a long process. What was what was the uh, timeline like from the concept of the idea to the final casting and the presentation? In January 2019, we first had the idea of we're going to do something, even if it's a modest little bench. We need something in this town to mark this. Yes. Um, and so basically, it was from then then to now, almost two full years. But by June 2019, we had the whole team together, and we had pretty much decided we wanted to go with a bronze 
one bust of limestone base. We were still working out the design of the base, the shape, you know, the curved lines and such. But by June 2019, we pretty much knew what we wanted to do. And we launched a real formal fundraising push in the fall of 2019 with a $30,000 budget. And that, that was the key to getting the project going because then we could actually hire artisans and craftsmen and start really, you know, turning these designs into physical reality. Yeah. So we were working on it by late 2019. Sure. And of course, you originally wanted to have it done in May of this year, which is yeah. the 25th anniversary mm -hmm. of Voyager. Um, but how'd you handle that setback? Well, you know, it was a bit of a shock at first, though, you know, we saw it coming and we've been paying attention to COVID and just sort of crossing our fingers. Yeah, hoping, yeah. Um, you know, but we just decided we got to roll with this. This is something everybody's dealing with. We're hardly the only thing that's being postponed and we'll just sort of wait and see. Yeah. By summer, we knew for certain contractual reasons that thing had to go on the ground in 2020. We could not, okay. have, put, we could not have put this off into another year even if we wanted to. Sure, sure. So come summer, we said, look, we got to pick a date in October. We picked a date where there was a chance that Kate Mulgrew might be able to be here in person. Sure. Didn't work out, but she was still available. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then we started publicizing it with no real idea how many people were going to show up. Yeah. And this, it was this was a lot more than yeah. we, we knew the last week that this isn't just going to be 40 or 50 people. We're yeah. going to be pushing over 100. Someone estimated 250 people here today, yeah. and that's that's amazing. I mean, pre-COVID, I would have you know trekkies. They're going to be thousands. So yeah. Yeah, right. You know, in this environment, we really didn't know. And and I'm glad the crowd people wore their masks. They social distance really, I think, as best you could in that crowd. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, it, oh, it was wonderful to see everybody here and that we were able to reschedule this and really make it happen. Yeah. Uh, Bloomington, of course, is important to Jerry Taylor, one of the co-creators of the character. And she, of course, then made it Jane Away's birthplace. What do you think that makes Jane Away essentially a loser? Well, I think it helps balance out, you know, she's a, she's a scientist and an engineer, but her roots here, especially if you read the book Mosaic that talks about her childhood here, it's much more, it's rural, it's farm country, and, and I think that provides a good balance in her personality between somebody who's very geared toward, like, the science and numbers and tech, but she also grew up in farm country and, you know, sort of had a little of both of those things in her, and I think they really helped, you know, sort of flesh out a complete character that's not just a tech guy or not just some rural person. Yeah, sure. And it's so fascinating that Kate Mulgrew's upbringing was, was similar in that way, even though she grew up in Iowa, mm -hmm. uh, having that same rural uh, uh, upbringing. Well, uh, thanks so much for your time, uh, and it's a beautiful monument. Uh, people can see it online. Where can people go to find out more about the collective? All right, well, we have a Facebook page. Um, it's the Captain Janeway Bloomington Collective. That name may be changing. We're kind of realigning the names now that the statue's in the ground. Sure, sure. Um, but if you search Janeway statue, you should be able to find us on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, um, and other platforms as well, most likely. Well, thanks so much for talking with us. All right, thank you. Very much my pleasure. Thank you. Your Honor, a courtroom is a crucible. In it, we burn away irrelevancies until we are left with a pure product, the truth, for all time. Oh, man, now, this is so intense. Data is on trial for his life. I know. This episode, The Measure of a Man, is based on the Supreme Court's Dred Scott decision of 1857. And every week on Backtracking, we take a look at the real-world events that inspired classic Star Trek episodes. Sorry. Shut up! 
Who are you? <laughs> We're the hosts of Backtracking. I'm Caliban. You will both be taken to the brig and from there to the nearest starbase, where you will answer charges for what you have done. And I'm Gooey Fame. This is not a game. This is life and death. You can follow us on Twitter. Backtracking is available wherever you listen to podcasts. You go f*** yourself. <laughs>